Welcome to TopCast and part two of A Dream of Socrates from the Beginning of Infinity by David Deutsch. This chapter is substantially a play of sorts. There are characters and there's a setting, there's a plot and the sides to the audience. And here we meet the wider cast. Last episode, Hermes came to Socrates in a dream, or by some other means, and using a Socratic method, drew out of Socrates something close to the epistemology of Karl Popper, which is critical rationalism. Now Socrates is about to teach his companions what he learned about epistemology. Now, just for some context, one of the main protagonists here is Aristocles, commonly known as Plato. Plato was a student of Socrates, and in turn, Aristotle was a student of Plato. And we also hear about Caiaphon, who's one of the main characters. Caiaphon was a friend of Socrates around the same age as Socrates, while Plato is substantially younger. And at the time of the visit to Delphi, perhaps Plato was around about a teenager, I think. Uh, Caphiron is a character who's somewhat conservative in his values and he values tradition. Whereas Plato is highly energetic and quick on the uptake, but slow to notice his own errors at times. As many of us think, Plato, for all of his genius, goes on to be one of the greatest apologists for tyranny in the entire Western or ancient canon. His book, The Republic, sees democracy as necessarily falling into tyranny. One reason for this is that Plato misunderstands what democracy actually is, and he thinks it's about who should rule, uh, rather than as an error-correcting mechanism. Uh, that misconception, it must be admitted, almost everyone ever since has held, and it took Karl Popper to correct the mistake. Plato, of course, believed in platonic ideals. So there must be an ideal kind of ruler who, once they've been installed, would be quite wrong to remove. Hence, democracy cannot be the best form of government except for all those others that have been tried from time to time, according to Plato. Plato taught that if a ruler, let's say a king, was also a philosopher, a philosopher being a lover of wisdom, then this would approach the ideal. Popper himself laid out the blame for totalitarianism in the 20th century at the feet of Plato. Plato was no doubt a genius of absolutely the first order, but some of us don't really have much love for him. Being a genius doesn't mean that all of your ideas are going to be good. Being a genius might mean that some of your arguments are great, but it could also mean that you're just very, very good at providing excellent arguments for really bad ideas. So while Socrates had all of the questions, and this is what some of us love about him, the Socratic method, Plato was in possession of rather too many ultimate answers, or supposed possession of answers anyway. Now, the character of Plato, as presented by David here, is of course largely a comic book version of the real Plato, of whose personality we don't know very much. David's Plato is extremely eager and eager to please, and very competitive, especially intellectually. I think we've all known people like this. The Socrates character demonstrates marvellous levels of patience with his younger friend, and we can see the differences not only in what we know about their philosophies or worldviews, but also the psychology that is driven by those underlying philosophies, and which in turn may lead to driving certain kinds of worldviews. There's the desire to investigate on the part of Socrates versus the desire for answers. There's patient thoughtfulness versus a competitive approach. There's creative conjecture versus extrapolation from some perceived pattern. So I think David here captures much of Plato's philosophy in his character as we'll see. And we will hear how Socrates actually improves on what he learned from the god Hermes, while Plato gets Socrates increasingly wrong. And that too is a deep message about critical rationalism and learning that 
any lesson, no matter how well delivered and with what clarity can be muddled even by the supposedly most intelligent person in the room. The second part of our story begins with Caferon knocking on Socrates' door at the inn where they are staying at Delphi, apparently waking him from his dream. Soon, Plato joins them and launches into his conversation barely waiting for replies, as is his character. Socrates, good morning. Thank you again a thousandfold for letting me come on this pilgrimage. But I was thinking last night, does it really count as a revelation if the oracle tells us only what we know? We already knew there was no one wiser than you, so I thought, shouldn't we go back and demand a free question? But then I thought- Aristocles, Socrates had- No, wait, don't tell me the answer. Let me tell you my best guess first. So I thought, yes, we already know he's the wisest and that he's modest, but we didn't know quite how modest. And that's what the God revealed to us, that Socrates is so modest that he'd contradict even a God saying he's wise. And another thing, we knew of Socrates' excellence, but now Apollo has revealed it to the whole world. And I wish the whole world had chipped in for the fee. What was that? Did I get it right? Oh, and Socrates, can I call you master? No. So there we have Plato showing a bit of his character. After this section comes another, and I'm going to skip that one, where Plato reveals his admiration for Sparta. He wants to call Socrates master because that's what Spartans do. He admires their martial prowess, so he's impressed by the use of force. He mentions how devout Spartans are with respect to the gods, and this indeed has some upsides. They maintain the peace at Delphi, for example. Plato, the character, has what I might call not merely the irritating habit of extrapolating from what someone says, but rather attributing those extrapolations to the mind of the speaker rather than to his own imagination. Finally, he, Plato, shuts up long enough so that Socrates can tell him about what else Hermes has said. It wasn't quite like that. He came to reveal to me a new branch of philosophy, epistemology, knowledge about knowledge which also has implications for morality and other fields. Much of it I already knew, or partially knew in various special cases, but he gave me a God's eye overview, which was breathtaking. Interestingly, he mainly did this by asking me questions and inviting me to think about certain things. It seems an effective technique. I may try it sometime. Tell us everything, Socrates. Start with the most interesting thing he asked and your reply. Well, one thing he asked me was to imagine a Spartan Socrates. A Spartan what? Oh, I see. That must be who the oracle meant. How sneaky Apollo is. It's this Spartan Socrates who is the wisest man in the world, though only by a breadth of hair, I'll bet. But being Spartan, he's probably the greatest warrior as well. Awesome. Of course, I know you were a great warrior in your day too, Socrates, but still a Spartan Socrates. So are we going to Sparta to see him right away, please? So epistemology is knowledge about knowledge. And when you've a God's eye view, it is breathtaking, and that's quite true. Recognising small parts of epistemology is something all of us can do without much learning, but when you take a deeper interest in any field, the whole can become breathtaking. And epistemology is very much like this because it is universal in its domain, which means it applies to everything. And epistemology, as the point of the, in, the beginning of infinity aims to show, is is the very thing, knowledge is the very thing, epistemology is the very thing that transforms the entire world. Uh, epistemology being the process of finding new knowledge or creating new knowledge. So it's not a parochial human concern of an esoteric bit of philosophy, really. Epistemology is the reason why large portions of planet Earth look the way they do. It is what explains societies that persist while others go extinct. Now, as Socrates says, 
At one stage, Hermes made me aware of the fundamental distinction between the Athenian approach to life and the Spartan. It is that... Wait. Let's all guess. This sounds fascinating. I'll start because this is basically what my poem was about. Well, the Spartan half of the riddle is easy. Sparta glories in war, and she values all the associated virtues such as courage and endurance and so on. Many of Socrates' companions suggest answers to the riddle of what the basic difference is between Sparta and Athens. I think that the god told me what their overarching concern is, and he also told me what ours is. Though, alas, we also fight for all sorts of other reasons, of which we often repent. Those two overarching concerns are these. We Athenians are concerned above all with improvement. The Spartans seek only stasis. Two opposite objectives. If you think about it, I believe you'll soon agree that this is the single source of the myriad of differences between the two cities. I never thought of it that way before, but I think I do agree. Let me try out the theory. Here's one difference between the cities. Sparta has no philosophers. That's because the job of a philosopher is to understand things better, which is a form of change, so they don't want it. Another difference is, they don't honour living poets, only dead ones. Why? Because dead poets don't write anything new, but live ones do. A third difference, their education system is insanely harsh. Ours is famously lax. Why? Because they don't want their kids to dare question anything, so that they won't ever think of changing anything. How am I doing? You are quick on the uptake as usual, Aristocles. However... But there, we've heard the difference. Athens wants improvement, while Sparta wants stasis. And this is the single source of all the other differences between the two cities, and of course between so-called dynamic societies, as David terms them, or open societies, as Popper would say, and static societies, societies that do not want change. But we haven't yet heard what exactly makes a dynamic society, a society that values improvement. Socrates says that in Sparta there are no people like him and no leaders who want improvement. As he says, In Sparta there are no such politicians and no such sophists and no gadflies such as me because any Spartan who did doubt or disapprove of the way things have always been done would keep it to himself. What few new ideas they do have are intended to sustain the city more securely in its current state. As for war, I know that there are Spartans who glory in war and would love to conquer and enslave the whole world, just as they once set out to conquer their neighbours. Yet the institutions of their city, and the deep assumptions that are built into the minds of even their hotheads, embody a visceral fear of any such step into the unknown. Perhaps it is significant that the statue of Ares that stands outside Sparta represents him chained, so that he will always be there to protect the city. Is that not the same as preventing the god of violence from breaking discipline? From being loosed upon the world to cause random mayhem with its terrifying risk of change? So there's a hint at the key, the key difference between the static and dynamic societies. Any new ideas the Spartans do manage to come up with are retained only insofar as they can sustain the city more securely in its current state. So let's think of contemporary examples. China has, an has lots of amazing new technologies, specifically for monitoring its citizens. It has cameras, it has systems to see what you're up to, to monitor your use on the internet, or your, your use of the internet. They have a system of social credit, they call it. And if your credit, your social credit is low, and they're monitoring the things that you're getting up to, to uh, inform the government about whether or not you're a good citizen, if your credit is low, you're going to have trouble. You're even going to have trouble buying food at the supermarket because your social credit is too low. Forget about your financial credit. 
Social credit is maintained and monitored by a complex computer system and is determined by the extent to which you fall in line with what society expects of you. A new idea, that's a new idea, so that's a new idea they've had using technology to maintain the status quo. So they've got a new idea, it's just that it maintains order in China. In the West, we don't quite have things as bad as that, although sometimes you see people wanting to monitor people's use, on, use of the internet. Um, but there are forms of stasis which try to maintain the status quo, certainly. Um, sustainability is one such. Maintaining the same environment in some sort of so-called ideal state or closer to ideal state, as if there is some kind of ideal kind of environment. We are far from immune here in the West. Now Socrates then goes on to convey a rather frightening message about how societies such as Sparta view Athens as a threat, even if Athens is peacefully keeping to itself because... The very existence of Athens, however peaceful, is a deadly threat to Sparta's stasis, and therefore in the long run, the condition for the continued stasis of Sparta, which means its continued existence as they see it. It is the destruction of progress in Athens which, from our perspective, would constitute the destruction of Athens. I still do not see specifically what the threat is. Well, suppose that in future, both cities were to continue to succeed with their overarching concerns. The Spartans would stay exactly as they are now, but we Athenians are already the envy of other Greeks with our wealth and diverse achievements. What will happen when we improve further and begin to outshine everyone in the world at everything? Spartans seldom travel or interact with foreigners, but they cannot keep themselves entirely in ignorance of developments elsewhere. Even going to war gives them some inkling of what life is like in other cities that are wealthier and freer than they are. One day, some Spartan youths visiting Delphi will find that it is the Athenians who have the better moves and the greater skill. What if, in a generation or two, Athenian warriors have developed some better moves on the battlefield? <laughs> So the creation of knowledge anywhere and progress anywhere is a threat to such places. What unites the regimes of, let's say, Iran and North Korea, to talk about contemporary examples, and other places in their apoplectic hatred of the United States and other countries in the West. Let's consider, what, what, what is that? What is the thing that, that, that they hate about the United States so much? Or about Europe? Or, or other places? Well, it... To some extent, it might be fear of weapons, but more than that, more than that, even if the United States had less weapons, even if the United States wasn't, wasn't a military threat to Iran or to North Korea, it is the knowledge and the ideas that are in places like the United States that threaten the regimes of Iran and North Korea. You know, South Korean activists kind of understand this. South Korean activists will take hot air balloons or helium balloons with mobile phones attached, and have them sail over the border, the demilitarized zone in uh, separating North and South Korea. So the phones, not because they're hoping, I don't know, that the phone will be some kind of weapon that when it falls out of the sky will fall onto the head of a soldier and kill him. No, it's so that the phone will land in the hands of a citizen who can then use the phone to find out something new, to find out something new. And it's the knowledge that would transform North Korea less than the guns. The knowledge can cause the citizens to change their ideas, and you get enough citizens to change their ideas, and then you can have a regime change. So I'm skipping another section now, where Socrates warns that even societies like Athens, which are open societies, 
should be conscious of how democracy can go wrong. For indeed, it has over time. By the way, we ourselves should be at least as wary of democracy as I think the Spartans are of bloodlust and of battle rage, for it is intrinsically as dangerous. We could not do without our democracy any more than the Spartans could do without their military training. And just as they have moderated the destructiveness of bloodlust through their traditions of discipline and caution, we have moderated the destructiveness of democracy through our traditions of virtue, tolerance and liberty. We are utterly dependent upon those traditions to keep our monster under control and on our side, just as the Spartans are dependent on their traditions to keep their monster from devouring them along with everyone else in sight. We might do well to put up a statue of democracy chained to symbolise the fundamental safeguard of our city. So when Socrates says that bit there, Plato scribbles down notes. Plato's been recording, right, with increasing inaccuracy what Socrates has been saying. Plato's notes read, democracy is a monster, dangerous if not chained, which is of course a step too far. What Socrates is in fact saying is that not all democracies are created equal. There are traditions that are needed to help democracy not become a monster in the first place that would require chaining. This is why it has been said that, for example, the Westminster system is so excellent. It's where traditions are ancient and they've been hard tested over time against many difficult real life situations, many difficult real life scenarios. The monarch has been denuded of almost all power. And, and, and most centrally important to that is that the monarch makes no rules. The monarch is not a ruler in that sense. They don't create new legislation. All the monarch has is so-called reserve powers to remove a government if things just aren't working at all and to have a new election. This kind of thing can ensure stability under rapid change. Now, if you, um, uh, a bit self-indulgent, if you Google my name, Brett Hall, and the phrase Republicans versus Monarchists, then you'll find an article I wrote about that in particular, about how uh, certain kinds of constitutional monarchy um, have inexplicit knowledge instantiated in the traditions and the systems, which ensure this stability under change. And we should be uh, hesitant to go tinkering with it too much because we don't know all the ways in which uh, it works or the reasons why it works, much less the ways in which it could fail if you tinker with it. Now, of course, there also exists upper and lower houses in good democracies and Supreme Courts, such as in Australia or the United States, to settle certain disputes between the branches of government. On the other hand, some systems do not permit parliaments to initiate legislation. So although they superficially appear to be democracies, they in fact aren't, because the people that are elected can't create legislation. They can't initiate legislation. They can't creatively come up with good ideas or new ideas. And in other, those kind of systems, there's ways and means of unelected people coming up with legislation that can then affect the lives of many, many different people. Um, this is rather like the European Parliament and the European Commission that work together in this way. The Commission can create new legislation, initiate new legislation, and all the Parliament can do is vote upon that legislation. And in fact, the Commission can overrule the Parliament. So we have the appearance of democracy only. You can't vote the commissioners out. You can't vote the rulers out, the people that make the rules. Traditions evolve over time incrementally under the pressures of dealing with real social problems. And in this way, 
processes and subsystems and cultures are whittled whittled away into kind of this machine, this well-oiled machine for critical debate and building consensus and for getting things done, and most especially rejecting bad ideas and rulers. And though David doesn't quite say this here, it seems to me to be somewhat implied. Democracy can elect tyrants. And so the tyranny, and indeed the tyranny of a majority over minorities can be a real hazard in almost any democracy. So we need democratic institutions to guard against this perversion. It's not just democracy, it's traditions within that democracy as well, and systems within that democracy. In the real world, we do not just have a Congress or just a House of Representatives. We have other checks and balances. We have things like Houses of Review, uh, the Senate or House of Lords. We have courts, we have heads of state. So this is the sense in which democracy has changed, as well as many other things that I haven't mentioned there. It is restricted to some extent from overreach and tyranny. But Plato doesn't quite get this. Plato finds the concern about the runaway excesses that are possible in a democracy as problems that cannot be solved, and so concludes democracy itself must be chained completely. The only way to do this, in his view, is with so-called benevolent dictators, philosopher kings. That's a frightening prospect, and yet we hear it again and again from public intellectuals these days, most especially. Anytime you hear someone argue for more X in government, where X is usually a scientist or some other kind of intellectual, you're hearing an argument for a philosopher king, a claim that someone is less prone to error, or especially better at knowing what is best for everyone else. In some cases, and I won't mention names because these are people I respect, these public intellectuals, I have heard explicit regret about only if we could have a benevolent dictator, a, a scientifically minded benevolent dictator, instead of the present systems around the world. And that benevolent dictator could right the wrongs, as if they would be less fallible. Now indeed, in the next part that I'm about to read, the companions discuss how if Sparta figured out that, the fact that thinkers, philosophers and scientists and so on, were useful in a society, then they could become far more powerful. Caferon sounds, like, sounds like a dangerous secret to be discussing out in the open. If the Spartans in general were capable of understanding that secret, they'd have implemented it long ago, and there'd be no war between our cities. If some individual Spartan tried to advocate new philosophical ideas, he would soon find himself on trial for heresy or any number of other crimes. Unless... Unless what? Unless the one who had taken up philosophy was a king. Trust you to find the logical loophole, Aristocles. Theoretically, you're right, but in Sparta, even the kings are not allowed to change anything important. If one were to try, he would be deposed by the ephors. Well, they have two kings, five ephors, and 28 senators. So mathematics tells us that if only 15 senators, three ephors, and one king were to take up philosophy. <laughs> yes, Aristocles, I concede. If the rulers of Sparta were to take up our style of philosophy and were then to seriously embark upon criticizing and reforming their traditions. Hmm, theorem. A king who's a philosopher is the same as a philosopher who's a king. So what if a philosopher became a king? Well, perhaps it's more likely that one benevolent king would have seized power. So there's Plato getting the Republic wrong. I'll just skip ahead to where he also gets knowledge wrong. Uh, he scribbles down, Socrates is the wisest man in the world. Socrates is the wisest man in the world because he's the only one who knows he has no knowledge because genuine knowledge is impossible. Wait, justified belief is impossible? Really, are you sure? <laughs> Sorry, but it's a somewhat perverse question, Aristocles. Oh, I see. Note that Plato has just asked for a justification of the belief that one cannot justify beliefs. 
No, I'm not sure of anything. I never have been. But the God explained to me why that must be so, starting with the fallibility of the human mind and the unreliability of sensory experience. It's only knowledge of the material world that's impossible, useless and undesirable. He gave me a marvellous perspective on how we perceive the world. Each of your eyes is like a dark little cave, one on whose rear wall some stray shadows fall from outside. You spend your whole life at the back of that cave, able to see nothing but the real wall, so you cannot see reality directly at all. It's as if we were prisoners chained inside a cave and permitted to look only at the real wall. We can never know the reality outside because we only see fleeting, distorted shadows of it. Note how Socrates is slightly improving on Hermes here, and Plato has been increasingly misinterpreting Socrates. He then went on to explain to me that objective knowledge is indeed possible. It comes from within. It begins as conjecture and then it is corrected by repeated cycles of criticism, including comparison with the evidence on our wall. The only true knowledge is that which comes from within. How? Remembered from a previous life? In this way, we frail and fallible humans can come to know objective reality, provided we use philosophically sound methods as I have described which most people do not. We come to know the true world beyond the illusory experience, but only by pursuing the kingly art of philosophy. Socrates, you really ought to write all this down, together with all your other wisdom, for the benefit of the whole world and posterity. No need, Aristocles. Posterity is right here listening. Posterity is all of you, my friends. What's the point of writing down things that are going to be endlessly tinkered with and improved? Rather than make a permanent record of all my misconceptions as they are at a particular instance, I would rather offer them to others in two-way debate. That way I benefit from criticism and may even make improvements myself. Whatever is valuable will survive such debates and be passed on without any effort from me. Whatever is not valuable would only make me look a fool to future generations. If you say so, Master. So that's like part 2A. I'm now going to move on to part 2B by changing location. Okay, after that quick change of location and apologies for the camera quality, I'm just doing a quick and cheap version of the, just the final part of this chapter. I'm really looking forward to doing the next chapter on the multiverse and there I can promise you some higher quality visuals. So at the end here of chapter 10, A Dream of Socrates, there's just a short section that David has written that is outside of the rest of the chapter, so to speak. It's not in theatrical or play form. And he begins the last bit of the chapter by talking about the so-called Socratic problem. The Socratic problem is Socrates never wrote anything himself. The only reports we have are from Plato, who did write down some stuff. And Plato's character of Socrates changes throughout his writings. Of course, the classic Socrates is thought of as the person who invented the Socratic method. He is this interlocutor who probes with questions to try and elicit the knowledge that the other person involved in a dialogue often already possesses. Or if they don't possess, it's through clever questioning that they're able to use their own reason to conjure new knowledge. So I'm not going to read that particular part of David's exposition. Um, I'm just going to concentrate on something he says here in part of the essay effectively that's at the end of this chapter. Uh, importantly, the section where he tries to explain how learning occurs and how communication can be difficult because of the way knowledge is actually constructed, because it's not justified true belief, because knowledge isn't a fluid of some sort, you can't pour it from one person into the next, the process whereby knowledge is produced in the mind of a learner, in the mind of someone who's trying to understand something, has to be a process of 
conjecture and refutation of, of them guessing what the meaning is that you're trying to impart. And so this has all sorts of interesting consequences because you can't speak perfectly, they can't understand you perfectly. There is no fallible means of transmission between what you know and what the other person is trying to understand. And so quite often, what happens is miscommunication. And so I'm just going to read a section here from the end of chapter 10 where David writes, In reality, the communication of new ideas, even mundane ones like directions, depends on guesswork on the part of both the recipient and the communicator and is inherently fallible. Hence, there is no reason to expect that the young Plato, just because he was intelligent and highly educated, and by all accounts a near worshipper of Socrates, made the fewest mistakes in conveying Socrates' theories. On the contrary, the default assumption should be that misunderstandings are ubiquitous, and that neither intelligence nor the intention to be accurate is any guarantee against them. It could easily be that the young Plato misunderstood everything that Socrates said to him, and that the older Plato gradually succeeded in understanding it, and is therefore the more reliable guide. Or it could be that Plato slipped ever further into misinterpretation and into positive errors of his own. Evidence, argument and explanation are needed to distinguish between these and many other possibilities. It is a difficult task for historians. Objective knowledge, though attainable, is hard to attain. I'll finish there and just my commentary on that. Um, this has important consequences, of course, for teaching and learning. Um, we are taught, I dare say all of us, that error is a bad thing, or that error is somehow something that deserves to be reprimanded. But when genuine efforts are made on the part of someone trying to learn something, and they fail at that, it's a necessary part of the learning process. Because the speak can speak erroneously. They can fallibly try to transmit some knowledge and fail at it. There can be failure on the part of the listener, and that's no fault of their own either, because that's part of being human, we're not gods. And this is putting aside the fact that institutions like schools are inherently coercive anyway, and so the person attempting to learn is doing it under duress quite often, and trying to learn things that they're just not interested in. So all of this is stacked against the typical student, because the entire culture of whether it be primary school, secondary school, tertiary education, is one in which Errors are punished because, of course, we do so-called assessment tasks, examinations, we write essays, and then we get graded upon those. And why do we get graded? We get graded, or how do we get graded? We get graded to the extent that we've met so-called outcomes. And outcomes are where we haven't made mistakes in learning. The whole purpose, supposedly, of school and university is to learn. But the process of learning requires that we make errors along the way. But errors are not rewarded. Instead, errors are punished through bad marks or low rankings and so on. But the ironic thing is that a high rate of errors typically means you're making lots and lots of fast progress. And of course, there are some wrinkles here. Someone who just attempts to write down all the wrong answers in an examination is, of course, deliberately making lots and lots of errors. But that's almost never the case. And sometimes people don't put in any effort. But why should they put in any effort to something that they don't really have any interest in? Okay. This will take us too far afield from this particular chapter. So let me get back to reading a little bit about the culture of philosophy as an academic discipline in particular. And I don't think it was until I read The Beginning of Infinity that I really reflected upon this and realized that when I was at university studying philosophy, that in fact, it's a rather bizarre thing to study, not just because, as many people complain, it doesn't have a lot of practical use, although I think it does, 
but rather for these reasons that David's about to mention. So let me read. He writes, Courses in philosophy place great weight on reading original texts and commentaries on them in order to understand the theories that were in the minds of the various great philosophers. This focus on history is odd and is in marked contrast to all other academic disciplines, except perhaps history itself. For example, in all the physics courses that I undertook at university, me too by the way, both as an undergraduate and as a graduate student, I cannot recall a single instance where any original papers or books by the great physicists of old were studied, or even on the reading list. Only when a course touched upon very recent discoveries did we ever read the work of their discoverers. So we learned Einstein's theory of relativity without ever hearing from Einstein. We knew Maxwell, Boltzmann, Schrödinger, Heisenberg and so on only as names. We read their theories in textbooks whose authors were physicists, not historians of physics, who themselves may never have read the works of these pioneers. Why? The immediate reason is that the original sources of scientific theories are almost never good sources. How could they be? All subsequent expositions are intended to be improvements on them, and some succeed, and improvements are cumulative. And there is a deeper reason. The originators of a fundamental new theory initially share many of the misconceptions of previous theories. They need to develop an understanding of how and why those theories are flawed, and how the new theory explains everything that they explained. But most people who subsequently learn the new theory have quite different concerns. Often they just want to take the theory for granted and use it to make predictions or to understand some complex phenomena in combination with other theories. Or they may want to understand nuances of it that have nothing to do with why it is superior to the old theories. Or they may want to improve it. But what they no longer care about is tracking down and definitively meeting every last objection that would naturally be made by someone thinking in terms of older, superseded theories. There is rarely any reason for scientists to address the obsolete problem situations that motivated the great scientists of the past. Pausing there and just my commentary. But in philosophy, that's precisely what goes on. When you're trying to understand some of what Descartes wrote about, I love Descartes, I love reading Descartes' meditations in particular. And Descartes had this thing called the method of doubt. And the method of doubt was a very interesting philosophical thought experiment. It's basically about what the limits of doubt are. Is there anything that you can't doubt? And so when you read him, he's sitting by the fireplace and he's wondering whether or not his body is real. Could he doubt his body? And he concludes that yes, he could doubt that his body is real because he might be dreaming. He can't sometimes tell whether during a dream, if he's actually dreaming or if he's awake. Whatever the case, this idea, it's sometimes known as the cogito, uh, from cogito ergo sum, which is Latin for I think, therefore I am. Interestingly enough, in the meditations, he never says I think, therefore I am. He says I think I am. And I think I am is a necessary truth each time someone thinks. And so this is supposed to be something that's infallible. Okay? Many, many modern philosophers today take it for granted that this is the fundamental thing that you cannot doubt. You cannot doubt your own existence. So long as you think, well then if you think, even if that thought is trying to doubt that you're thinking, something is doing the doubting, therefore that thing exists. Okay, whatever the case, I won't go into the details why I now think that in fact is wrong, that's misconceived, it's a misconception to think that that is an infallible truth. Rather, what's interesting about this is that we read it in Descartes' meditations. We read the translation of the French, Descartes wrote in French, and we consulted the, the original and we critiqued the original, and then we read some commentaries on the original, uh, namely other philosophers who, who, um, who criticised Descartes. But why? 
why aren't there texts of philosophy where you can just look up Descartes' cogito? Well, in fact, you can these days. There's lots of popular philosophy books where you're not reading uh, the philosopher's ideas in their own words, in their original words, but rather someone else who has distilled out the useful stuff. And I think that's a far better way to learn philosophy, in fact. Sometimes the writing's quite beautiful, I should say that. I do enjoy reading people like David Hume, I think that's interesting, and of course Karl Popper's very interesting and clear, uh, and David Deutsch, of course. Um, but as those old philosophies especially are critiqued and improved, there's no reason for us to go back, except as a matter of some sort of literature, to read the old philosophers. There's better ways to understand those ideas now. And I'll just read one final bit here, right at the end of this chapter. And David's further talking about why we wouldn't consult the, the original formulation of any scientific theory. So we wouldn't go to Einstein's original papers published in 1915 to understand the theory of relativity, for example. David writes, the reason why the scientists are trying to learn the theory, and also why they have such disregard for the faithfulness to the original, is that they want to know how the world is. Crucially, this is the same objective that the originator of the theory had. If it is a good theory, if it is a superb theory, as the fundamental theories of physics nowadays are, then it is exceedingly hard to vary while still remaining a viable explanation. So the learners, through criticism of their initial guesses, and with the help of their books, teachers and colleagues, seeking a viable explanation, will arrive at the same theory as the originator. That is how the theory manages to be passed faithfully from generation to generation, despite no one caring about its faithfulness one way or the other. So I'll pause there. This is a remarkably optimistic way of thinking about learning. That let's say you're interested in physics, and a lot of people, when they're interested in physics, they follow a sort of classical trajectory through physics where you learn some algebra and some calculus. You learn about so-called classical mechanics. Most of it uh, was invented by, created by, discovered by <laughs> Newton and Laplace and some others. Uh, and then you move on to relativity by Einstein, and then you move on to quantum theory, and then, it, and then it gets more specialized from there. Now the interesting thing here about what David said is that if you're trying to genuinely understand Newton's theory, and you eventually do feel you have a good grasp of Newton's theory, you've gone through the same process as Newton. You are now as smart as what Newton was in terms of that theory. You understand the theory as well as probably better than what Newton did, because Newton didn't understand all the ways in which his theory was actually wrong, and now we do, and probably in understanding Newton's theory, you now have some idea, if you understand it well, of the flaws in Newton's theory. So that's really interesting. So I'll say that again in a different way. If you're trying to understand and you actually succeed in understanding, you really feel you've succeeded in comprehending the special theory of relativity invented by Einstein, discovered by Einstein, then you're just as good as Einstein in terms of that theory because you've gone through a similar process if you've actually tried to learn it. You've tried to solve certain problems. At least the scientists who are trying to use the special theory of relativity, let's say, to solve certain practical problems, they will have gone through that process. Okay? Um, proper physicists will have gone through that process. Proper, proper chemists will have gone through the process that Mendeleev used in order to understand the periodic table, and so on. Now, in the next chapter, chapter 11, the multiverse, which I've been really excited about um, completing, it's going to take me 
some weeks, I think, to do that one. It's about quantum theory. It's about how we best understand quantum theory today. It's controversial, but it's not more controversial than other aspects of just quantum theory once you try and understand it. And the struggle that people have even today in appreciating what quantum theory is saying about reality and the world that we live in is due in large part to consulting the original authors of quantum theory, so to speak. They were struggling very much to try and understand what on earth reality was telling us about itself through this theory of quantum physics. And initially we had all sorts of really weird ideas. People were saying that this kind of suggested things like electrons, atoms even, could be both particles. A particle is a thing that is isolated at a place and a time. So it's, it's right here, right now, it's in a particular place and time. It's isolated to a point, in other words. That's what a particle is. But atoms and electrons, for example, they're particles, but they can also sometimes be waves simultaneously. And a wave is not a thing that's isolated at a point in space. A wave is a thing that is extended throughout space. So in other words, quantum theory on this view, and it's sometimes called the Copenhagen interpretation, on this view, on the Copenhagen interpretation, something like an atom is both a particle isolated at a point and a wave extended throughout space, isolated at a point and not isolated at a point simultaneously. That was the original view of quantum theory. People ever since have consulted the original authors of quantum theory. People like Heisenberg and Dirac and um, Schrodinger who were debating all of this at the time and struggling to try and understand what the meaning of all this was. And because they're just throwing around ideas, they were making lots of errors, as you do when you're trying to understand something new. The problem now in the culture, and the culture of physics in particular, is it resembles, to some extent, that mistake that philosophy still makes today. Namely, consulting the original authors of the theory and trying to see what better insight they had back then. And their confusion has filtered through to today. There was someone who actually figured out, his name was Hugh Everett, he figured out how best to interpret quantum theory, realistically speaking. In other words, in a way that didn't violate logic, in a way that didn't upset the normal understanding of the way in which words are used, so that we can understand quantum theory in a realistic way. Now it says some profound and interesting things, but it makes sense even if those things are profound and interesting. Anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself because that's going to be in the next chapter. Um, now I just, absolute final thing for this chapter, an addendum to what I said earlier about the different kinds of democracies. Um, David tweeted just just after I think I recorded that last video where I was trying to explain how certain kinds of democracies might be better than some others, or certain so-called democracies might be better than some others. In particular, I was talking about the what I call the excellence of the Westminster system um, and compared it to certain other systems, namely the, let's say, the EU parliamentary system. In the EU parliamentary system, the parliamentarians there, the members of the European Parliament, can't initiate legislation. The rulers, the people making the rules, they're in the commission, the EU commission, and they create the legislation. But the voters have no way of removing those rulers. 
the commission people are installed by national governments. And so they're immune to being removed. So if they make a mistake, if they make bad policies, there's nothing that the voters can do about that. Um, now, sometimes people have complained that, oh, well, that's like your queen. That's like a queen in the Commonwealth, okay? The queen of England, the, the head of state there. Not really, because again, as I explain, tried to explain, the head of state in the Westminster system has zero legislative power. They can't make up policies, okay? They have a certain constitutional function, but they do not make rules. And so because they don't make policies, there's no reason to try and correct them. Now, there could be things that go wrong in a constitutional monarchy with the monarch. Absolutely. Okay, absolutely. Absolutely. But the constitutional monarchy, just by looking and observing and trying to explain the world as it is, has shown itself to be a robust institution that allows for great stability under fast progress. So it's no accident, many of us think, that the Enlightenment and Industrial Revolution in particular happened in England and in around the United Kingdom. Um, how could you have such great change? Political change, scientific change, cultural change, um, and yet the society to remain quite stable. Well, we think in, certainly in large parts because of this parliamentary democracy, in a particular constitutional monarchy. Now, a, an extra thing to say about this. Is there a way of, let's say, ranking something like the Westminster system against another good system like the United States Republic, okay, the United States democratic system, uh, or, or republican system as they often say. It's a republic rather than a democracy, some people say. Uh, it's still a democracy. In Popper's view, a democracy is nothing but a system which allows the removal of rulers. The purpose of the democracy is the removal of rulers that you don't want there anymore. Okay, without violence, without violence. That's the point of a democracy. Now, I, I hint at what I'm about to say in that um, article that I pointed people to, um, uh, Monarchists versus Republicans in Australia. Again, you can Google that one. Um, where, I, where I actually hint that in Australia, there, there, there has been a debate over the years about whether or not we should remove the British monarch as our head of state and instead have a president, a president of Australia, who would be separate to the Prime Minister of Australia and the rest of the government in Australia. Now, I don't completely object to this, but I object to certain models of this. So I say in my article, without going back and reading it right now, I'll try and do this from memory, I say in part there that certain models of an Australian Republic would be a really bad idea. If we were to just take our, the substitute we have for the head of state, the technical head of state, is the Queen, the Queen of Australia. She's the Queen of India, she's the Queen of Great Britain. Um, she's the Queen and she's our technical head of state. But her representative in Australia is called the Governor General of Australia. The Governor General of Australia can technically remove the government. And it's happened once before uh, where the Governor General has removed the Prime Minister. Now, if that, that works, works reasonably well, although you know it was called the constitutional crisis when the Prime Minister at the time, called Gough Whitlam, was removed back in the 70s. Um, some people still disagree about that, and there's a whole bunch of <laughs> material out there about whether it was legal to do and what happened. It's all very interesting, politically speaking, in terms of history. Nonetheless, Australia has remained politically relatively stable for a long, long time. There's been no, in other words, there's been no violent insurrections over the years. 
Now, if we were to just replace the Governor General as representative of the Queen and have exactly the same position filled by a president appointed by the parliament, because the Governor General is appointed by the parliament and then the Queen approves or something, it's just a matter of ticking off. If we were to have President of Australia instead of Governor General of Australia and call ourselves a republic, that wouldn't worry me too much. But some models for an Australian republic call for a popularly elected president, which I think would be a terrible idea. And the reason I think it would be a terrible idea is because then you'd have a, another seat of power. In Australia, we've got the House of Representatives and we have the Australian Senate. And these two um, houses form the Parliament of Australia. There's an executive within the Parliament of Australia, but it's not separately elected. Okay, the executive is the Prime Minister and his cabinet. And they're the ones that do the day-to-day -day business of governing. The Governor-General has absolutely no power to create legislation. He's not a ruler or she's not a ruler. All they do is if there's a crisis, a constitutional crisis, they can create another election. Okay, or in fact remove the entire government and put the opposition in if the opposition can form a government. Okay, don't want to get into the nuances of that. If you had an elected president here in Australia, you'd have the Senate, you'd have the House of Representatives, and then you'd have an elected president. Let's say the policies of the government, of the Prime Minister, and of the House of Representatives differed starkly from the policies of the President of Australia. The President of Australia, if they're popularly elected, would be popularly elected during an election where they're standing up in front of the TV cameras and so on and giving interviews about why they're the best person. And why they're the best person would have to come down to what ideas they have for Australia. They would have policies about what's best. So now you've got a problem. If you have a popularly elected president in Australia and a popularly elected government led by a prime minister, if there was a difference of opinion, what do you do? And what would the population do if the prime minister was constantly in disagreement with the president? And could the president remove the prime minister if there's a sufficient disagreement? And would they just be, if they're from different parties, just constantly removing one another? Would it just be a constitutional crisis almost all the time? Let's consider what's happening right now. I'm recording this in 2020. The President of the United States is currently under impeachment and the process is going through the American Senate. This is distracting from the normal business of government. It's, for some people, for some anarchists out there, this is a good thing. It's slowing down the ability of the government to actually do anything useful. And by useful, uh, some anarchists, some certain people who don't really buy the idea that um, states are necessarily a good thing, as in, you know, large state apparatus. So if you can slow down the government from doing stuff, you're actually slowing down the government from impeding progress. I'll leave that aside. For the purpose of a functioning government, the problem then becomes that you have various seats of power. And these various seats of power mean that none of, that all of them can deny responsibility when things go wrong. I just want you to read um, David Deutsch's tweet back on the 24th of January 2020. And he wrote in his tweet, having an elected executive independent of the legislature is already bad, dissipates responsibility away from both. 
don't know how to fix that. He's talking about the United States here, and he rather wryly suggests, consider amending the constitution to revert to a parliamentary system and inviting Harry and Meghan to be king and queen. <laughs> um, so, possible. But what he's saying there, and I tend to agree, is that the United States is a great democracy, the United Kingdom great democracy, um, but really, objectively speaking, one is more democratic than the other. The Westminster parliamentary system is better. Why? Because when a mistake is made by the rulers, by the government as a whole in some way, there's a clear accountability on the part of the Westminster system in terms of the government. The government and the House of Commons in particular are the people responsible for what's going wrong. In the United States, you have Congress and you have the Senate and you also have the independently elected executive, namely the president. And so when the Congress and the president, as is happening right now, are at loggerheads, less happens. And this happened under Obama as well. And it happened under Clinton. It's happened again and again in the United States. Now, some might see this as a virtue because it slows down the ability of the government to actually do too much, in theory. In practice, however, many people are worried about just how much the United States government is doing, the federal government is doing, they think they should be doing less. Again, the point of government, on Popper's view, is that it is a system for removing rulers with no violence. And the rulers we want to remove are the rulers who've made policy mistakes over time. But if you've got distributed power, such that the president, let's say, is popularly elected, and the Congress is popularly elected, and both can kind of come up with rules, the president can make, can regulate, and the Congress can legislate, then the difficulty there is, if there's a problem arising, whatever that problem is out there in reality, okay, in Australia right now we have a drought going on, and there's various different policies about what we should do to try and um, conserve water or to create some more water by desalination and so on. When there's a real problem out there in the world for which government might be a useful solution or might be able to bring to bear a useful solution, if I was to migrate this problem to the United States, the president might be able to make some regulations about what should happen with the water. The Congress might be able to make some legislation about building dams and so on. And when these two things are at loggerheads with one another, when they disagree with one another, then both sides can say it's the other person's fault. So they are immune to a certain amount of responsibility. When in reality what you want from a political leader is the ability to come up with a policy, they then get voted for, they enact the policy, and if the policy fails, then it is clearly their responsibility. They can't turn around and say, oh, I did my best, but it was the other mob with power that was the problem. In fact, here in Australia right now, there in fact is a version of this where there is the federal government and there's the state government. And the federal government and the state government are complaining when it comes to bushfires that have been happening and, for example, the drought situation I was just talking about, where both of these seats of power have responsibility for the same thing, in a sense. And so they're both complaining that it's the, it's the other mob who is actually in charge of this. And it's the other mob who should be held responsible for things going wrong, for the problems that are happening. All because 
the institutions are not perfectly in line with Popper's criterion of democracy. Namely, they have to be able to be removed on the basis that their policies are bad, and if their policies are bad, if their policies are bad, then we can clearly identify that it is that group, that group of leaders that is responsible. Okay, so won't be talking politics for a quite a long time now because I'm onto the multiverse completely abstracted away from anything to do with droughts and political systems to a large extent. So look forward to that one in a few weeks. Until then, bye-bye.